Uh, look, I'm, I'm extremely excited to start our, uh, my ser- sermon today. It's out of our summer sessions series. We're dealing with legends of the Old Testament. And uh, what we're doing is we're taking our teaching team and we're rotating through all of our locations. And uh, we, are, we are bringing you Old Testament legends that are going to really, you know, bring clarity to the value of the Old Testament. Because a lot of times people get the impression that there's nothing of relevance in the Old Testament, but there's actually complete and utter relevance because it really did lay the foundation for our New Testament faith, if you will. And, uh, and so I want to give you some clarity about a particular individual today. His name is Nehemiah. And uh, we're going to talk about how God used Nehemiah to bridge the gap between the brokenness of a people and the restoration that God had promised for that people. And so if I was to actually title this sermon, I would, I would title it, Bridging the Gap. That's what we're going to hear about, how not only did God use Nehemiah to bridge the gap then, but how God is doing some very important things all throughout history and even today in this room to bridge the gap to, to between the brokenness of people's lives and the restoration that he has in store for them. Now, I'm going to be kind of flying over this thing at about a million miles an hour, at about a thousand feet high, and, and, and so we're going to kind of touch our toe in some of these scriptures, and I want to encourage you, if, if you're interested, I, I, would, I would hope that you would be, that you go home sometime today, maybe sometime this week, that you read the book of Nehemiah. It's 13 chapters, not a ton. You could get it done in one sitting. I recommend it. It's actually a a pretty good narrative that you can get through in one sitting. And and maybe even touch on Ezra, the book that comes right before Nehemiah. And and you'll see this this storyline that's really important that that I'm going to kind of crack open today. And so we're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 1. And in Nehemiah chapter 1, he opens this letter. The letter's open with these words, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. Now, at first glance, you might think that Nehemiah wrote this letter. And some scholars do believe that Nehemiah did write this letter. But most scholars actually believe that it was Ezra, a friend of Nehemiah, who wrote this letter. And so while, while Nehemiah kind of reads like a very personal portrait of Nehemiah's life, it, it, it seems like really a journal entry, if you will. It's probably more written like a, just a very intimate biography, one friend writing for another, right? And so Ezra writes of Nehemiah almost as if Nehemiah was speaking in first person. And, and you're going to realize that this is a historically reliable text, Okay, and that matters. You know, we talk about the validity of the Old Testament, right? It's not valid if it's not reliable. And and I just want to let you know that it is reliable. Uh, It stood up against the scrutiny of of many people that would love to diminish its worth and value. And and it can't fall. It won't fall. And the, the historical writings of antiquity substantiate the claims, literally the things that we're going to look at here. And so it is historically reliable. But most of you didn't come today for a history lesson, I, I bet. And, and so I'm not going to walk through this as much like a history lesson, but just know we are dealing with a real people in a real place from a real time, and, and it matters to us. It's not just a history lesson. It's a saga. It's more of a, of a story, a, a saga of a people, God's promised people, his covenant people, that, that we're expecting to, for God to, to do certain things in their lives and, and through many circumstances, including their own disobedience, they experience great turmoil. They experience uh, not, not victory in this season, but defeat in this season, and they're exiled from their land, and they find themselves 900 miles east in a town called Babylon, 
which for you guys that are interested, I'm sure you're going to go pull up your maps later, and, and you're going to find that Babylon's actually located in modern-day Iraq. And, and so just to give you some context, Israel, 900 miles east to Babylon. And, and what we're going to learn as we look at this storyline is that God's promise still stands. Though they're experiencing this pain, this suffering, this exile, God's not done with them yet. They're going to experience a homecoming. And that homecoming looks like a four-month journey back west from Babylon to Israel, to their holy city. And I'm imagining this caravan of, of who knows how many people, dust-covered faces, sandals worn out, you know, probably most of them walking, some of them, you know, on, on, on the backs of, who knows, donkeys and camels. I don't know what they rode then, right? They weren't in cars. I know it was a, a tough journey that took four months. And, and, and I would imagine some anticipation, some eagerness to get home, right? You know, when you're on a long trip and you just want to get home, you're coming down 65 and you jump on 10 and you're like, almost there, baby. I'm, and and the, the excitement, my, my, I can smell my pillow, you know, and, and then they get home. And the walls of their holy city are torn down. Their temple is piled in a rubble. And they knew that, but to, to see that was probably heartbreaking because those two things represented the promise that God had for them. Now, if you stop for a second and imagine what I just shared with you and you add some epic soundtrack over the background, you, you kind of have a good Netflix series trailer, right? Would you be interested in, in watching something like that? I, I would. I'm kind of into things like that. I love I love stuff that has historical anchoring. And, and, uh, and you know, I like to watch Netflix series from time to time. Do you, anybody Netflix fans or you got a few of you, half of you? Half of you just don't feel like raising your hand. That's okay. Lazy. That's okay. Amazon, Amazon, Paramount, whatever. I don't know what streaming service you're on, but we, we watch, me and Amy, my wife, who unfortunately isn't feeling well today. She's home. Pray for her. But we watch a, a series every now and then, and, and we'll be laying in bed or sitting on the couch, and we're watching this series, and and Amy, like, without a shadow of doubt, because she's so investigative, she's asking me questions five minutes into the series. What do you think is going to happen next? I'm like, baby, I got the same amount of information as you, okay? I don't know why you think I know something that you don't. <laughs> Ten minutes later, I think he's involved. Okay, okay, Detective Amy, I appreciate that. That's helpful. Are you going to stop, or did you just want to fast forward to the good part? Do you just want to go to the end and find out? Because we could do that if you want. And, and for people like Amy, maybe there's more people like that in this room right now, I'm just going to skip to the good part today. The good part is this, that God does bridge the gap between what the enemy stole from his people and what God intended to restore to his people, that covenant promise. I'm going to skip to the good part. God's heart for people is a heart of restoration. And you need to hear that. And you need to let that settle down in your heart. Because some of you might feel like your life is like those walls or like that temple. And you need to know that God's heart for you is a heart of restoration. And actually, that's going to be the filter over today's message. Now, unlike Amy, I like some good plot development. You know what I mean? I'm like... Asking her, yeah, did you watch the, do you know what happened? How did we get here, right? And so for those of you that vibe with some plot development, if you were to go and read Nehemiah this afternoon, like I'm sure all of you plan to do, you're going to find that, that you're kind of jumping in the middle of a story. He's like halfway, you're like something's obviously happened before this. This is, this is way too deep in the story. I've got to go figure it out. And so what I want to do is I want to binge on a few seasons that came before this one and we're going to go all the way back to the series premiere, which is really an origin story. We're going back to the garden 
the Garden of Eden. You guys have probably heard of that. I think if there's any good gospel presentation, we can usually root it back to the Garden of Eden because in the garden we find this, this picture of a, a place that was real, that was perfect, where God literally dwelt with his people. God created man and woman and, and they lived in the garden with him and they enjoyed all of the, the fruitfulness, all of the beauty of the garden and they were flourishing in that place. But God did give them one boundary. He said, I don't want you to eat from that tree. Surely if you do, it'll bring destruction. And, and what, do you, what happens every time you tell a kid not to do something? They do it. Of course they do because that's just our nature. And so they do. And they eat from that tree and and because they violated the law of God, they crossed a boundary they weren't intended to cross. God's word is true. And so death and destruction did come on them. The curse of sin and death fell on their heads and all of their ancestors thereafter. Shame was the outcome. Separation in relationship between people and their heavenly father was the outcome. This is, this is a big deal. This is a really important part of the story. They're cut off, but God, I love those transitions. God's always got a plan B, right? Now, he knew this was going to happen, and so he comes and he brings them their next step. He says, look, you're not going to experience all of this now, but I'm going to make a promise with you. And that promise is that the one who, who stole this from you, the, the serpent that deceived you to believe that you should eat from that tree, the knowledge of good and evil, there will be one that comes and crushes his head. There's this promise that Adam and Eve now are longing for, and all people from then on longed for the same promise. This is, this is a good opener, right? Good series opener. And in God's mercy and grace, he provides a path. He bridges the gap between that separation in relationship. He bridges the gap between their brokenness and the future restoration. And one of the ways that he does that is by giving the people eventually what we know as the tabernacle. Now, in the book of Exodus, you see that God's people are in bondage in Egypt. That was also because of their disobedience. But God delivers them out of bondage, and in the wilderness they are given the tabernacle where God's presence is in the Ark of the Covenant, where, where God's people would meet with the Father, where, where, they, would, where they would confess their sin and, and they would sacrifice animals on the altar. There would be a, a blood sacrifice, and that blood would pay for the price for their sin, and they'd receive forgiveness from God himself. This tabernacle was an extremely important part of God's people's redemptive experience. And eventually that tabernacle that was portable became permanent. King Solomon, he came after King David, he built the tabernacle or the uh, temple. And the temple was the place where all of those things happened. And for thousands of years from the time of the garden to where we pick up in Nehemiah, the same cycle, the same cycle of rebellion Right? Repentance and restoration. Rebellion, repentance, and restoration. Re over and over again, wash and repeat, we continued to go through that. And so thank God that he provided the path to restoration because we don't learn. Now, in 627 B.C., God sent a prophet to speak to Israel, his people. And for decades, this prophet named Jeremiah... He's prophesying to the people, right? That's declaring the word of God. And so God gives him a message for the people, and, and, and the people never really heed the message. And eventually the message includes this, that this whole land shall become a ruin and waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. 
Remember I told you about Babylon earlier? This is how they wind up in Babylon. And, and that happened. They came to waste. In 586 B.C., the holy city Jerusalem was sacked. And their city walls were torn down. And those walls represented so much to the people. It represented protection. It represented their distinction from the people in the, in the pagan uh, uh, tribes around them that, that weren't worshipers of the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It represented their holiness. It represented God's glory. And, and not only God's glory, but that God's people were glorified with him. It represented so much to them, and there they were torn down. And the temple, you already know, represented salvation and God's presence. And, and now they're exiled, and the promise seems so far away, just out of reach. I imagine the grief and the lamenting when you think you've got it figured out, and then another mess is at your doorstep. You know, the good thing is, is that Jeremiah didn't only prophesy destruction, he prophesied restoration, and so does another prophet. Isaiah records the Lord saying this to, as a message to give to the people. The Lord says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purposes, saying of Jerusalem, that's the holy city whose walls were torn down, she shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. So I love this about the Old Testament, we see these prophetic looking forwards to God's faithfulness to his people. God says, I know that what you see is a mess. I know that your, your life is in shambles, that the city is torn down, that your place of worship is, is, is in a pile of rubble. I know that's what you see, but I'm not done with you yet. I'm not done with you yet. And, and some of us need to receive that today. Maybe our life is in a mess or the lives of some people around us are in a mess. And, and, and can I just speak that over you? God's not done with your mess yet. He'll restore. He's able to. He's faithful. And God doesn't just promise them restoration. God says, I'll use the king whose nation is actually keeping you captive. That's that man Cyrus that we read in that scripture. He's the king. Now, the king of Babylon was Nebuchadnezzar, and then there was a succession of kings, and eventually Cyrus. While they're in exile, all this is happening. Cyrus eventually becomes king, and that's who's prophesied about here specifically. And this is before Cyrus ever even is born that this prophecy is made. And, and God does persuade Cyrus, the king of Persia, and even all of his predecessors to be faithful to the promise and send the captives home so they can rebuild. And a couple waves of exiles are sent home. Zerubbabel is sent with the first wave of exile and exiles, and he goes and relays the altar, rebuilds the altar where those sacrifices were made that led to the forgiveness of the people. That's a pretty big deal, right? And, and he relays the temple foundation, which is where the presence of God was expected to, to, to be and, and where they worship, and, and that's great. Of course, he didn't get to finish. If you've ever read uh, Zechariah uh, and, and you've heard that uh, scripture, don't despise small beginnings. Zechariah was actually prophesying to Zerubbabel because Zerubbabel was discouraged because he, he didn't get to finish what he had hoped to build. And sometimes we feel that way. Don't despise small beginnings. And then, and then you've got Ezra who followed Zerubbabel years later with another wave of, of exiles. And Zerubbabel, or, uh, Ezra brings the word of God and reorients people around the word of God. And there's a lot of work to do there because they imbibed a lot of the pagan practices and, and, and the lies of the land. And, and so he goes and does that work. And, and, and so that's where we find ourselves when we open up Zechariah. We're binged on a few seasons. You guys 
Uh, was that a pretty good overview? You know, it's those overviews where you watch them before the, the, the new series and you're like, what just happened? Well, they gave you just enough to know, and that's what I thought I'd do. And, and so the new season release is ready, and we're going to come to the opening scene. And, and the opening scene is poignant. It's, it's, it's emotional. It's, you know, you see, like, Nehemiah in a very personal place. And, and, and I think you might even relate to this as you think about your own trials. And, and we're not just going to see Nehemiah here, though. We're going to also find ourselves in this storyline. We're going to draw some principles out of this that are going to help us apply these truths to our lives and ultimately, we're going to see what it matters for us today in Christ. So Israel is a divided kingdom at this point in time. North kingdom is Israel. Southern kingdom is Judah. And in Nehemiah chapter 1, we see that men from Judah, which is where the southern kingdom, where the holy city Jerusalem was found, they brought Nehemiah a report of the Jews who'd survived the exile. Now, those who survived would have been those who went home with the first few waves of exiles. They survived the journey, right? But it would have also been those who were in Jerusalem when, when the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem. And so they would have been living in great poverty and great pain under this, this occupying people. It would have been a really difficult thing. And, and, and this group of men bring Nehemiah this report of the trouble that these people find themselves in. In chapter 1, verse 3, it says this, The remnant there in the province who survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. Doesn't that sound like the work of the enemy? Trouble and shame. Destruction and brokenness. That's the way that Satan has always brought people to the place that he brings them. And in verse 4, it says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. Not just minutes, not just hours. He was moved so deeply. He mourned for days. And he continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I'm thinking of Psalm 137. If, you, if you're a Bob Marley fan, you might know that song, Rivers of Babylon, right? As I, as I sat down by the rivers of Babylon... There I wept, right? As I remembered Zion, as I remembered Jerusalem. That's Psalm 137. That, that there is a picture of that pain, that grief. And he goes to praying and, and fasting and seeking the Lord. And before he asks for any of his needs to be met, you read this as you go, you'll find that he's worshiping and that he's remembering that, that God in God's steadfast love keeps his covenant for his covenant people. That's, that's one of the things he draws out of that moment. And then he confesses his sin. See, God used Nehemiah to bridge the gap between brokenness and restoration. But before he does that, he wants to do something in Nehemiah before he does something through him. And he, he brings Nehemiah to this place of brokenness and contriteness, like Pastor Casey was talking about earlier. God will not despise a broken and contrite heart. And this grieving, Nehemiah intercedes for the people. He fasts. For the, for the restoration of this broken people. Now, the enemy of our souls has brought much shame and trouble on many people's lives, maybe even our own. And we, like Nehemiah, should be hungry to see the restoration of the broken. Principle one. We should be hungry to see the restoration of the broken. That we would intercede for them. That we would, that we would even sacrifice those fleshly desires to, to, to give room for those spiritual desires to increase in our lives, we should be hungry for the restoration of the broken. There's walls broken all around us. You look in our nation, 
I don't want to go too far down this path, but, but some people would say that our nation is in what will be considered moral decline or decay. These are sociologists, not just Christians. These are secular people that, that understand the, the rhythms of society, and, and we see brokenness. And then it's not just the nation, because you could get kind of high and mighty thinking about how people should be, right? Then we look at the church. There's brokenness in the church. There's moral failures at the highest levels in the church. Leaders, elders, pastors, lay people, just all over the place, just lives in, in a mess. And, and then you, again, could, well, that's not me. <laughs> but isn't it? Isn't it, though? Aren't so many of us walking through some degree of brokenness in one way or another? And if it's not us, it's not somebody that's too far from us. There's brokenness everywhere we look. The enemy has done a horrible work. And we've got to be hungry for the restoration of a people that God might use us to bridge the gap between their brokenness and, and, and their restoration. But it's got to start in us. Nehemiah confessed his sin. Like we got to be a confessing people that are honest about our own brokenness, that are honest about our own sin. That we would find wholeness in Christ so that before we were to go, before God would do something through us, that he would be doing it through a person who is whole, who's healed, who's well. And that's part of what we're trying to do as a church is grow in Christ and become more healthy. One of our values, become more healthy around the gospel. Now, in chapter 1, verse 11, Nehemiah clarifies who he is. He says, I was a cupbearer to the king. Now, he's not just giving you his resume for the sake of giving you a resume, right? You ever meet somebody like that that tells you all the things they've done? You're like, cool. <laughs> I'm really impressed. Thank you for that. That's not his heart here. I think he was just trying to help us understand the, the space that he found himself in. He wanted to give context so that we'd understand his situation. And we see that his context is that he's the cupbearer to the king and he's close to the king. And the king's cupbearer was somebody that, that wasn't just a, a lowly servant, even though he's a Jew exiled in this Persian nation. He's not a lowly servant. God has brought him to a place where he was actually somebody that the king trusted with his cup to, decide, to determine whether or not that cup was poison or not. And, and this person becomes, in, in that cu culture, would have become a trusted advisor, would have be become somebody that the king relied on for advisory and, and things of that nature. And so Nehemiah is in this incredible position, but he's not a priest. He's not a teacher of the law. He's not working in a church, right? But God intends to use him in a mighty way. And, and he's got this government job. He's a civil servant. He's got this secular role, right? That's anything that would be categorically not considered sacred. You know, people like to categorize those things, right? He's got this secular job, but he's about to do a sacred thing. That's what, that's what he's on deck to do. And he yields his skill set, he yields his giftings, he yields his influence, all to the will of God so that God can use him to help bridge the gap. So that God could use him to bring glory to God and to bring a good outcome to the people. See, God uses people in secular places to do sacred things, principle two. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a truth. You know, and there's a spectrum, I think, that we find ourselves in and how we apply this. A lot of people want to overapply this, Right? So, okay, if God uses people in secular places, which is anything kind of outside the church, let's just summarize it that way, right? 
to do sacred things, which is like churchy things, you know, then what they say, what they say is then, well, I don't need to come to the church because I'm busy about my father's business out there in the marketplace, out there in this space, out there in that space, because God uses people in secular spaces to do sacred things. And I would call that an over-application. And I would say if you looked at the scripture, and Pastor Casey brought up that we should not forsake the gathering of the believers, right, that we were to gather to stir one another to love and good works, so all the more as the day the Lord draws near. We are to do that as a prescription. That's like we're prescribed that by the, the word of God. And so anybody that over-applies this and says, I don't need that, I don't need the church, they've got bad doctrine. I just want to throw that out there. It's unfortunate because they're missing out on the richness of what's happening here, but, you know, it it's, it's, it's happens. Now, there's some people also, and we need to kind of be careful because you might find yourself in this camp. Some people under-apply it, and they say, well, as long as I come to church, and as long as I serve on a team, and as long as I'm giving, and as long as I'm in a group, right, as long as those things, as long as I check those boxes, I've done my sacred duty. But I would also say that that's bad doctrine. Because we see in the Great Commission that we are commissioned to go into all the world. So we gather together. We don't want to diminish the worth and value of this, but part of the gathering together is to encourage one another to love and good works, to go. So we minister here, and then we minister everywhere else Monday through Saturday. The kingdom doesn't ever take a break, you understand? The kingdom's not on pause. Like, you can, like, we don't just, like, watch an episode on Sunday and then come back next Sunday and watch another episode. Like, we are binging on the kingdom all week long, right? (laughs) And so if you're a parent, you're in your home being faithful. You're a homemaker. Man, that's an incredible privilege. One of the hardest jobs I've ever seen somebody endeavor to, to be responsible and faithful to. If, if you're in education, as a teacher, maybe you're in school right now, man, you can bring the sacred to those secular spaces. If you're, if you're a civil servant, you're in police or fire, you're an entrepreneur, you're a, a tradesman, you're in the military, you're in medicine, you're in, you're in sales, you're in the arts. I, I don't know. There's so many things you can be doing that will be categorically considered secular. You have the opportunity to bring the sacred to the secular. And you don't want to miss it. Because it's part of our identity as believers that we be ambassadors for Christ. We're to be salt in a tasteless world. Because Christ says, come taste and see that the Lord is good. We Come taste and see that the Lord is good. His, he, and he uses us to pour salt out on all these spaces that he sends us. Now, I'm not suggesting you unscrew the top of the salt shaker and just pour that whole joker out. Like, you know, you might, you know, offend somebody's palate, okay? Not that the gospel's not offensive. I'm just saying, let's use wisdom, right? Keep the lid on and sprinkle to taste and help them get a view of Christ and the gospel, right? But, but we, we got to be salt. Are we actively seeking God for wisdom about how to do that? to bridge the gap between the sacred and the secular. Now, we don't have proof that Nehemiah evangelized King Cyrus, but we do know that he uses influence for the sake of the kingdom. And he, he asks King Cyrus in chapter 2, verse 8, to send. He says, send my people so that we can go and finish this sacred work. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. I love that. And, and, and the good hand of our God is upon us as we go. And Nehemiah was sent by a providential God with provision because God provides for those who he calls to go. 
He doesn't just call the equipped. He equips the called, right? He'll equip you with whatever you need to do his will. And in the same chapter, verse 20, we see that God gave Nehemiah success. And, and Nehemiah journeys home with this next wave of exiles. In chapter 4, verse 6, it says, They built the wall, and the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Anybody in here with a mind to work? I look around, I see some hardworking people in here, you know, it's calluses on the hands, you know, shoulder to the plow, maybe a little tired, maybe a little bruised, a little beat up. You know, God's going to provide us opportunities, and God's going to provide us resources. He'll give you a shovel, but he ain't going to dig your hole. You got to dig the hole. What is commission? Jesus calls us to go on co-mission with him. Well, he's, he's on mission with us, but we're on mission with him, and we're cooperating <laughs> to seek and save the lost and destroy the works of the enemy. We must have a mind to work. We've got to have a mind to work. We can't grow lazy or apathetic because faith in God does not justify passivity. There's a principle for you. Faith in God does not justify passivity. You know, we went to Northwood Church uh, Ocean Springs to plant in uh, early 2020, and then COVID happened. We we worked through that, and and then we were supposed to launch in August, and that didn't happen. We worked through that, and, and then we launched in January, and we've been working through what it looks like to launch a portable church in in a really an untapped market, and. and and it's been a lot of hard work for, for me and Amy. Our, our kids even have been part of that. And, and let alone all of the faithful men and women of God that, that were sent with us and that God's gathered around us since then. And, and just to quickly give you a, a report, man, I just want to let you know that Ocean Springs is doing incredibly well. There is a healthy body there that is on mission with you, on co-mission with you to build a Christ-centered community that helps people know God, grow in Christ, and go in the power of the Holy Spirit until Jesus returns and we share the same values as you do, and it's growing, and, and, and we're excited about what God's doing. And, and he's got some important next steps for us to take, and we're waiting on him and believing, and, and things are good, but it's hard work. It's hard work. Part of that's just because the work is hard. Part of that is because we're sinners and we, we struggle with our own brokenness at times, right? We keep running up against the same walls. And, but it's hard work. And, and, and while we need rest, while we need Sabbath in our lives, while we need health in our lives, that's one of our values. We believe that. We'll never say to do anything that compromises overall health. We want, we want, to, we want to be... Uh, uh, ministering out of the health that we have, not ministering trying to find health, right? But as we abide in Christ, as we find that health, man, we've got to keep working to expand the kingdom of God. Will you let God use you to bridge the gap as he looks to expand the kingdom through you? We have to ask that question. Chapter 4, verse 8 through 9, we see that halfway through the project, right, because they bought, brought the wall to half its height. They, were, they had a mind to work, but they're not done. Still a lot ahead of them. You know, sometimes we're like, whew, whew, oh, we're only halfway there. <laughs> oh and, and then what happens in, in a spot like that? You're tired. You're kind of beat up a little bit, right? Your mind's wandering. You're looking for a vacation, and we need those. Take that. But, but you know, you're just kind of, and then this happens. The enemy all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem, 
and to cause confusion in it. But we prayed to our God, right? We have faith. We asked God to intervene. And we did our part. We set a guard as a protection against them day and night. So we're, we're in faith, believing that God's going to protect us. And in faith, we're standing on the watchtower with a sword in our hand. Because the enemy is real. The enemy of our lives is real. And, and we should expect adversity when pursuing God's will. We don't like to hear that. We like the easy road. <laughs> but the easy road is a wide road that leads to destruction. And, and Jesus, as we learned in the Sermon on the Mount, calls us to a narrow path that's hard. And, and so we're expecting adversity we expect that the sacred work that God calls us to will provoke the enemy. And, and I'll tell you, since Northwood Church went to Ocean Springs, I believe, though it's ex reasonable to expect hard work and it's reasonable to expect our own limitations, I also believe that we've been under attack in many senses for myself. Now, I could tell you right now that the reason I'm wearing this back brace underneath my shirt is because the enemy inflicted trauma on my back. I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think I haven't been caring for my body. I'm not healthy, and I need to get that in check and figure out how to strengthen my core. I think that's true. But do you know what happens while you feel weak and while you feel this trauma in your body? Your mind starts to wander, and that's where the enemy starts playing with you. And, and so people are walking through all kinds of things, and in the church, you are walking through all kinds of things, and it might not be the enemy that did that to you. Maybe it is. I don't want to speak for what God is or isn't doing, what the enemy is or isn't doing. I can't clarify that for you, but I do know that that, that mind of yours, as it starts to unwind because of your fatigue, because of your fear, because of your failing faith, as that mind begins to unwind, the enemy will grab hold of that, put a foothold on you, and begin to lie to you and begin to tell you all kinds of things to steal from you, to kill you, to destroy you, because that's his plan. And I'll just tell you, if, if there wasn't something of value, something of beauty inside of you, he wouldn't be attacking you anyway. And so be encouraged. But it's real. He attacks people who are doing sacred work. There's a target on your back. And we need to learn to fight. We need to learn to stand. I'm learning to stand I've been walking with the Lord for over 15 years, and, 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 and I'm still learning to stand. And when all is said and done to stand still, I'm learning to contend for the faith, and I'm learning to do it with faithful brothers and sisters. I'm learning to, to be vulnerable with people. We need to do that. We need to be vulnerable with people so that when, when we don't have the strength ourselves to fight, that they'll lift our, our hands for us in the battle so that we can stay faithful before the Lord under, under attacks from the enemy. Man, we need one another, you know. And they finished the wall. They finished the temple. That's what they did. And you'd think that'd be the crescendo of this story. But that's just a part of the story. They finished the wall. They finished the temple. But part of Nehemiah's warfare against the, the enemy and, and part of Nehemiah's reorientation for the people included reorienting them around the word of God. And you know what the people did? They became attentive to the word of God. They listened they opened their ears. They took it in. They received it. They didn't just let it fall on hard soil. They said, Lord, open the eyes of my heart so that I might hear your word and delight in your word. You know, that's our heart 
I know Pastor Casey and Pastor Jordan and all of the teaching team and so many people in this room, that's our heart for the church is that we as a body would be attentive to the word because it's the word of God, the, the sword of the spirit. It's, the, it's this, this truth that, that sets the captive free. It's this truth that enables us to stand against the lies and, and these people were hearing the truth. And you know what? Nehemiah, when they heard the truth, he called them to repentance the same way the Lord called him to repentance and they confessed and, and then they consecrated themselves out of their idolatrous ways. They didn't just confess and keep doing the same thing, although that happens at times. We have bad patterns in life, and we're learning to reprogram our, our thinking and create new habits and new rhythms of life. But at the end of the day, repentance requires turning away from something and turning towards God. And, and they repented from the pagan, idolatrous ways of the land and returned their heart and their worship to the one true God. And you know what God did? He brought revival to the people. He brought them from grief to glory. And I think that's what he's doing in our church. I see that all over the place. And so in chapter 8, verse 10, Nehemiah, and this is our last scripture out of Nehemiah today. He says, do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. That's what I want for my strength. So you remember, I told you before, God's heart for people is a heart of restoration. And when we believe that God is restoring our lives and restoring the lives of the people that we've been burdened for, man, doesn't that bring joy? Even, even when we can't see it, even when we don't know what God's doing, man, he'll give us joy in those dark places of our lives. He'll give us joy in the hardships because that's who he is. But the question becomes, how does God restore people now. I gave you the Old Testament. How do we bridge the gap between the old and the new? Well, this is how Jesus, Jesus is now the temple. See, that temple was a, a place. The temple becomes a person. And in John chapter 2, Jesus is in that temple. And, and again, the disobedience of the people, they, they let sin into their worship practice. And Jesus is in there flipping tables over and, and, and chasing the, the money changers out of that place. And they say, who are you? What authority do you have to do these things? He says, authority? <laughs> ah. John chapter 2, destroy this temple, speaking of himself. And in three days, I'll raise it up. He was speaking of the temple of his body. And that's what he did. Jesus went on the cross at Calvary. And he shed his blood the same way that a blood sacrifice was made in the temple and the tabernacle years earlier. Now Jesus' perfect sinless blood is shed on that cross at Calvary. And it's through that blood that we receive forgiveness, that we receive wholeness in Christ. It's through his authority, his cosmic authority, not just over those people, not just over our lives, but over all things that Jesus restores people. When he died on that cross, the temple veil actually tore, not just displaying his power, but showing to us that he has made a way into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God. And now, with his blood-bought forgiveness, us believing that Christ paid it all, as we put our trust in him, he raises us with him. By the same power that rose Christ from the grave, he raises us to life by the Holy Spirit, and now he calls us his temple. And in 1 Corinthians, it says, you're God's temple, and his spirit dwells in you. 
And he's calling us to abide. He's calling us to abide faithfully. He's calling us to lean into him in the hardship, to lean into him in those moments of joy, to lean into him. And despite where we find ourselves, his joy will become our strength and his presence, his, his spirit will comfort us, will counsel us, will lead us to all truth and righteousness, will help us. God the Spirit will help you relate to God the Father and God the Son. And for every person that trusts in Christ, who has his Holy Spirit in him. We receive that restoration, we receive that wholeness, and we receive that purpose, but we've got to let him bridge the gap. Will you join me in prayer? Father, we just come before you, and we thank you so much for your word that is true and enduring. We thank you for your love that is unfailing, your restorative plan for your people. God, we thank you that we no longer have to come with bulls and goats and, and rams and some, some foreign practice. Lord, we, we can come to you now with an offering of our life in Christ, covered by his blood, receiving forgiveness. We can live in the promise and the wholeness that you have given us in and through your son Jesus on that cross. God, for those people that are in this room right now that feel you just drawing them unto yourself, Lord, would you convict them of their sin? Would you let them know that they're not alone in that? But right now, with that exposure before you, Lord, that they would realize that they are alone as they stand before you. And that it's you, Lord who can give them forgiveness. It's you, Lord, that can make them whole. If you're in this room right now and you want forgiveness, and not just forgiveness from your sin, but also healing and wholeness from the consequence of your sin, can I just tell you, you gotta put your trust in Jesus, all of those things I just said, and he will accomplish that for you. He will give you forgiveness, and he will make you whole. But you've gotta surrender. If that's you in this room right now, I'm just asking you to say, I surrender. It's that simple. Say, Jesus, I surrender my life to you. All the good, all the bad, take it. And help me to live for you. Help me to bridge the gap as I walk out my salvation in fear and trembling as you've bridged the gap for me. I love you. In Jesus' name.